Sophie Medlin is a well-recognised consultant dietitian. Uh, if you don't recognise her for being the chair of the British Dietetic uh, Association, you may have seen her hit TV show, Know Your Shit, on Channel 4. Um, Sophie, I'm most in... Like, was that the biggest mistake ever, naming the show that? Because it's on it's on normal tv and i'm assuming when you do lots of interviews and talk what do you call it when you're talking to people when you can't say shit yeah good question do you know what? the production company pushed really hard to have it called know your shit i think it's it says everything about it right it's about like poo but it's also about being knowledgeable about it and understanding it and all of that kind of stuff so they work really hard for it they know what they're doing and i think that that kind of attention grabbing type of title for a program works really well it does make it a little bit uncomfortable especially I do a lot of um talks for community groups and things like that people who live with ileostomies colostomies that sort of thing and I'm always really uncomfortable in situations where there's lots of elderly people there and I'm having to say shit but I generally say no you're shh and then they know what I'm saying I'm really I'm really interested in that you know so talk to me a little bit about how that sort of show came around because channel four is interesting it's always been they're always pushing channel four to be at like the cutting edge of what's coming out on tv that's always been the kind of history of it how did that sort of come around how did you get involved in it yeah so um the mac twins who run the gut stuff they have been like long-term friends and colleagues of mine so they actually pitched the program for a long time to lots of different production companies and they were always told no one wants to watch a program about poo it's going to get buried on the schedule on sky arts or something that no one's going to watch no offense to sky arts and um so they were told it's just not it's not a thing and then luckily monkey kingdom who were the production company met with the girls and they loved them and they thought well do you know what i think we can definitely do something here which is great and then they got their little black book out and looked up all the people that they've worked with before and the things. And we all had to screen test for it and figure out whether we were the right people for the job. And luckily, you know, I, I was able to join the show and develop it into kind of what it is now, really, which is very much like my clinic on TV, essentially. So it was a real gift to be able to share that with people and to help people to understand more about what dietitians do, what we're what we're capable of and how we can help people. Um, but also to to destigmatize some of these problems because of course there are people coming on the show who suffer with incontinence. There are people who can hardly eat anything at all. And it's been, you know, it's really lovely to be able to demonstrate the sort of outcomes that we can achieve while destigmatizing, keeping it really soft and gentle and promoting the amazing work of dietitians as well. Yeah. I think if you were ever worried about that TV show being excess, you just need to look at some of the TV. I mean, there are TV shows about people cleaning other people's houses. <laughs> yeah, I feel point. like if that's, the, if, if that's a hit, this is definitely going to be. It's obviously become kind of more and more topical. For people that haven't seen the show, can you just explain a little bit about because they've done a really, really good job of making it sort of, you would it would be interesting to watch even if you don't have digestive issues, right? Yeah, definitely. And I think that, as you know, and as pe probably most people listening to this podcast will know, what what is normal in terms of gut function is relatively poorly understood by the general population. So as well as following these amazing people, and, and by the way, when they put out the casting call for the show, the casting company had more of a response. So this is looking for people who want to be on the show. They had more of a response for people with gut health problems than they've ever had before for any other TV show, wow. which just goes to show, number one, how many people are suffering and struggling and not getting the help they need, but also 
um, you know, how we thought maybe no one would want to come on TV and talk about their bowels, right? But actually there were loads of people who were like, no, please help me. And that's amazing. So we're really lucky. So we followed the stories of some of these people. They come into the clinic. We call it Poo HQ, which I love. They come into the clinic. We talk to them. So sometimes it's me and a gastroenterologist. Sometimes it's me and a psychologist. And sometimes it's me and an immunologist. And we talk to the, the patients about what's going on for them, what's happened, uh, their history. So we actually did full consultations in the studio for all of the patients but of course just clips of these are shown on, on the telly uh, we give them some dietary treatment they may go off and have more tests and things like that and then they come back six weeks later and, and around that is all these things about what's normal how often should you be going for a poo how what should it smell like what should it look like there's also loads of stories about what the latest research is in gut health and where things are connected and how things are working together so as you say i think you know anyone who's interested in health in general could get a lot from it and certainly anyone who's ever struggled with their bowel or thinks well I'm not sure if this is normal would definitely get a lot out of it yeah I, I think it's amazing because actually the the tv show in some ways like what I think a, a lot of the drive for many of us when we're consuming articles and I think that's why clickbait articles sort of work so well right if you see an article about Alzheimer's you may have you may have no personal connection to it it might not affect you but a lot of us just kind of want to know like could this affect me Am I so to go on there and just see like, am I normal? And this yeah. isn't in conversation. I think probably attracts. Well, it does, doesn't it? Such a, a broad audience to it, but also yeah. probably increases. You know, I, as a as a, uh, a a dietitian, Sophie, like you would have always kind of seen this firsthand of the impact that has on lives. But for so many people, um. It's not like a broken leg. It's not visible. It's not obvious. It's not kind of out there. But for some people, they don't travel. They don't go out to restaurants. They don't go on holiday. They always have to be thinking, where is the nearest toilet? They're in chronic pain from it. Um, yeah. But there's not a huge kind of empathy level around it, I think. And I, I think the show has been really clever at, at highlighting that to people. Yeah, thank you. And, I, you know, I think... The way that it was set up and the way that they made the studio look beautiful and everything feel very soft just for anyone who may feel a bit squeamish about it we don't show any poo there's no like <laughs> nothing that would be squeamish or anything like that on the show at all and you know a lot of my patients live with chronic bowel conditions that um do stop them leaving the house do stop them going on holiday mean that they are constantly thinking about their their bowel and one of the things I say regularly is everyone takes their colon or their rectum for granted until it goes wrong, right? And we are so lucky to have these bits of kit that work beautifully because for those, even where something's slightly not quite working as we need it to, life can be incredibly difficult. And as you say, we don't talk about it. People feel a lot of shame and stigma around these kinds of conditions and problems. And I hope that the show... I know, fortunately, the show went a long way to, to breaking those barriers down for people because I've had lots and lots of lovely new patients come to my clinic and, and tell me I watched the show and I, it was the first time I've been able to talk about this. And that feels amazing to me as someone who, who just really wants to help people and make people better. I was, I was really interested for you on a, on a personal level because the um, gut health is changing so fast and so dramatic and so much research is coming out. Um, you sit on an you sit in an interesting world because you're one of the very few people that I know that is a you're obviously a fully qualified dietitian. You are practicing, mm -hmm. um, but you're also involved in lots of you know some quite pioneering areas, 
around the kind of gut health and microbiome. And I wondered for you at times is because the reason I say this is because I was looking actually at some of the stuff that, um, you know, you see some certainly some like psychologists out in America that are following more kind of systemic theories and publishing books around that and the tension between them and the psychology boards and stuff like that. And I wondered for you um, how that sort of like, is that a challenge for you? Because there is a sort of idea that some of the processes that dietitians are using are not as current as some process. Like, I'm, I'm just interested for you how you <laughs> yeah. walk. Did you see what I mean? Like that line. Oh yeah, totally, totally. And I think, you know, I, I have like a commercial hat where I design products for the industry, which I love. And that's quite controversial in and of itself. I then also have my media hat and sometimes in, in the media, like for example, on the show, we did microbiome testing, which isn't something we do regularly in my practice even, and it's not necessary for most people, but it's something that was useful, a useful tool for the show and brought up useful discussion points. Um, and then I have my clinical practice. And of course, within my clinical practice, we still, even though I'm in private practice, we still follow evidence-based guidelines and everything else. Mm -hmm. That's part of my profession that I have to do those things. But equally in, in such a, a rapidly evolving area, we have to also think holistically about our patients and about what's going on for them in the whole of their life. So we certainly also recommend things like gut directed yoga and hypnotherapy and all of these alternative in inverted commas practices, which of course, you know, eventually will make it into the guidelines hypnotherapy has, but it, it takes time. And there's certainly tension between myself um, and some of my more uh, old school colleagues, let's say mm. there's certainly tension between uh, myself and some of the gastroenterologists within the NHS in particular who I need to work alongside in order to get my patients the best outcomes where uh, there's just not necessarily that understanding. I mean, the only probiotic that was available on prescription to patients has been taken off prescription, for example, which is so frustrating because, of course, you know, I see a lot of patients on a pay what you can basis, so they don't pay anywhere near my full fees. And I'm really happy and proud to be able to offer that to people. But that does mean that those who would massively benefit from a good quality probiotic can't access it on prescription anymore which is a huge backward step in my mind and you know it takes time for the nhs health services and, and other people to catch up but i would say almost across the board gastroenterologists in particular who would be the first people we would work with in terms of gut health problems they understand more and more about the microbiome they're on board with understanding the impact of it mm -hmm. and how valuable it is to to our practice and to taking care of our patients so whilst there certainly is commercial tension and sometimes you know things it, it is difficult to bridge that bridge that gap and to toe that line um in general people are on board as long as they are you know up to date i guess really yeah. i think i think also i think it's so easy to kind of become polarized and a lot of the, the arguments that i kind of see is um you know somebody will uh, a trial will come out it will show something let's just say um, like um, sauna usage and Alzheimer's, right? And so the, the the simple response to that is, well, the NHS should just put saunas in every town, right? And I think that the, a lot of the problems around it is like, I think sometimes people perceive that the NHS either ignore emerging trials that are coming out or are not interested in it or they're kind of set in their ways. Whereas actually, I wondered if people sort of reframed it around this idea of, the NHS is a life-saving service, not a life-optimizing 
serve. It would yeah. just go. It would just go bankrupt if it tried. I mean, yeah, it's it's struggling. You know, the NHS. We can't deny it. My patients who need to see a gynaecologist are waiting two years, three years to see gynaecologists. To see gastroenterology, they're waiting two years. These are people who can't leave their homes and probably have something going on for them in terms of inflammatory bowel disease or something that needs treatment, right? These, it's, it's very challenging times for the NHS. We cannot underestimate that. And, and I think we all know that when the NHS was set up, it was presumed that the nation would get healthier and that the NHS would play a big role in preventative health care. But in reality, that's not what's happened. And we need to understand as you say, that the NHS, particularly right now, and, you know, hopefully it will get better, but right now it is about life-saving and preventing. Prevention is not on the agenda right now. It's about firefighting, Mm. unfortunately. And, you know, I have many amazing colleagues in the NHS who are on that front line and are struggling to just do cancer services, for example, which, of course, should be a major priority. So it is challenging times. It's really difficult, and I think we... We have a responsibility right now as individuals to do whatever is in our power to take care of our own health and to to do what we can do to stay as well as we can be. Um, And of course, that that message is much more accessible to some people than other people for financial reasons, for reasons of disability, for reasons of time and all of these things. But I think we we need to try and and look to what we can do for ourselves as much as we can in terms of prevention of long-term conditions. 20 years from now, do you see things like probiotics, microbiome testing, like more marked microbiome testing? Do you see that becoming a a thing within the NHS? Do you think they're going to move more into those areas? I mean, the, the problem with I mean, let's let's talk about it as a dream world because there's some depressing <laughs> conversations we could have about the NHS right now. In in the ideal situation, I feel very sure that the NHS will move into much more looking at markers for diseases. For I think we'll start to use genetic testing more. I think we'll start to use microbiome testing more to understand what's going on for people and to understand how best to manage what's going on for them. Um, you know, we treat, for example, urinary tract infections by throwing loads of antibiotics at them. We treat things like, um, so H. pylori is a, is a bug that you can get in your stomach. So it's like a, a, um, a parasite that you can get in your stomach. It's relatively common in the way that people treat that and the way it's supposed to be treated is by giving you lots of antibiotics. And that's absolutely the right thing to do because it must be eradicated. But of course, then what we what I see in my clinics is people who with really long term chronic gut problems as a result of having H. pylori eradication, which is inevitably also wiped out their entire microbiome. Right. So we have to find and there are you know better gastroenterologists now who are saying you need to take probiotics alongside this treatment for your H. pylori mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And most GPs now, I would say, uh, are giving the message that it would be a good idea to take some probiotics if you're taking antibiotics. It's certainly not across the board. And I think that our understanding of what's going on for people's microbiomes is is growing all the time thanks to amazing research that's going on and i hope that that will certainly be implemented as soon as it becomes you know wide and mainstream enough for us to do it and one of the things i think people sometimes misunderstand perhaps is that really our understanding about what's normal in terms of the gut microbiome is still fairly limited so until we've got a really great uh, handle on what a normal microbiome looks like we're not going to be able to use 
the markers that we can see for things like inflammatory bowel disease effectively because we don't really know what it means and there are plenty of people going around living completely healthy lives with what are currently considered to be bacterial markers for IBD there are people walking around who are a, a very healthy size who have a microbiome that denotes obesity for example so that we still don't we're still not there in really understanding what's normal and therefore you being we are a number of years off, possibly a decade off, being able to use it in practice as a way of treating and managing conditions. When we think about um, gut health, I think it's it's uh, and even to an element you did touch on this on the on the on the Channel Four show as well. But I think uh, for the for the for the average consumer, when they think about the microbiome, they think they simply think about digestive pain. Mm-hmm. Uh, bloating, diarrhea, that, that's kind of the extent of it. But I know that some of your work around has, has not just been around the, the gut-brain connection, which we'll, we'll, we'll touch a little bit more on about, but, but like you were talking about there as well with like urinary tract infections, polycystic ovary uh, complications. What, what do you see when you when you work with conditions like that and you see people with that how are we drawing connections between the overall kind of health of somebody's gut because i think some people would struggle to kind of make that bridge yeah for sure and i think it can be quite helpful there's something in language here so when we talk about gut function I'm talking about how many times you go for a poo, what that experience is like, are you bloated, are you gassy, all of that kind of stuff. So we have gut function and some people have gut function issues. And then we have gut health, which is maybe more focused on our microbiome. And these aren't, this isn't accepted language. This is just how I differentiate things when I'm speaking to people about it. And I think um, the, the problem or the thing, there's a lot of this stuff, isn't there? And I think we also, you know, there's lots of gut health products that are advertised to people and people want to buy them, even though they have gut function problems. If you've got gut function problems, some of those gut health products are not going to be for you because they're going to cause you more symptoms. So it's sort of trying to navigate that world is, is complicated. But I think that's the way we've got to differentiate it largely. Sorry, I've forgotten your question, Ollie. I was just saying, so 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 let's take the example of like polycystic ovary sure, yeah. you know, complications. How I think for some people they would struggle to see a connection between their yeah. like microbiome and their and their symptoms. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I think we need to think about there is how much of a role our microbiome plays in the inflammatory potential within our body. When we look at metabolic conditions like diabetes, like heart disease, like polycystic ovarian syndrome, they're all considered to be conditions that sit alongside inflammation. Inflammation is a part of those conditions. And our gut bacteria massively support our immune system and manage inflammation within our gut and also within the rest of our bodies. So there's a really important, what we call a postbiotic. So a compound that's produced by probiotic bacteria and I know this language is difficult for people, but what we're talking about is essentially you take a probiotic or you have probiotics already in your gut and they produce compounds in the fermentation of plant foods. And those post, one of those postbiotics is called butyrate, which is a really powerful anti-inflammatory agent that for in, in many conditions really helps to control and manage inflammation systemically within the whole body as well as in, within the gut lining itself. And the reason that that's so important is because 
all of these conditions are linked to inflammation and, and that goes into skin conditions and other things as well. So where we can optimise our gut health and, and, you know, people will be perhaps interested to know that when we look at stool samples and microbiome tests of people who live with PCOS, they have a different microbiome profile or differences in their microbiome in comparison to people who don't live with PCOS and diabetes and heart disease and things like that as well. So it's not just some of those things are going to be with you forever and there's nothing you can do about it but certainly we can optimize gut health and support your microbiome to be as anti to, to optimize its anti-inflammatory benefits to be able to support those overall systemic inflammatory involved conditions i was watching did you did you see the um have you seen the program on netflix live to 100 yeah yeah i've seen a couple of episodes amazing wasn't that amazing so basically the the, the show is um it, he was a a journalist and now become like a quite a prominent researcher in America that basically has been studying blue zone areas, blue zone areas being where you have a disproportionate number of centurions in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a population. Um, so he traveled around the world and tried to, went to these different blue zone areas to try and see if there was a kind of correlation between these areas where people live to a very, very uh, old age. And um, and some really obvious stuff in there, right? Like as you would expect. Okay, so the the diet, there's plenty of fiber. There's not huge quantities of meat. There's you know the the things that you would kind of expect. But there was some really really fascinating stuff that kind of came out of that. You know, so one example was, um, you know, there were these uh, uh, villages in Sardinia, um, all bunched quite closely together, um, all ate the same diet all did similar things, all had similar jobs, but one village just had a disproportionate number of centurions. And basically the, the outlying factor was the village was on a very steep hill. Yeah. And like, I think that for me was, is you can get so bogged down in uh, specific treatments, specific conditions, all of those sorts of things. But I think what that program did was really kind of position this kind of much more systemic thought around... Um, the importance of a purpose. Um, essentially, that steep village just basically meant that everyone, right up into their old age, had a load of zone two exercise. Yeah, and week. loads of weight bearing exercise as well, right? Because walking up hills is much more strenuous on our muscles. And like, I think what you're absolutely right, and I'm sure you were around in the industry when people were trying to, and they, I'm sure they still are, trying to sell special compounds from blue zones and of course what we need to recognize is while there are common threads across all of these blue zones all of them eat diff very different diets largely plant-based and by that i don't mean vegan by that i mean mostly eating plants some animal proteins plenty of eggs plenty of fish hopefully that kind of thing but nothing that's anything like the processed food that we eat now and there will inevitably be in those blue zones as well people are locally growing and harvesting their own food right and that means that there's no air miles on it it's the, all the nutrients are there the soil's not depleted all of these things that kind of nudge and there's so many things that we can't control we can't live in blue zones you could go and live in a blue zone but it's probably too late for you already now but you can go and live in a blue zone but ultimately it's about trying to learn those lessons and one of the big lessons i think people need to take from that is also about lack of stress you know, people in those areas are not people who are stressed about emails or spreadsheets or, or these kinds of things that we worry about day to day. And they also feel very connected to their community. They are doing manual labor until they're really quite old, growing things and being very active in the community and feeling 
needed and wanted until much much later in life and that's where we can really take these lessons about the importance of our holistic health including our mental health and well-being into you know into my clinics and into the general public population to say look you can pop as many supplements as you want to and you can go in the sauna every day and start your day at six and do your manifestations and your gratitude and all the things you're supposed to do on social media and you can have the six pack and all this kind of stuff but the chances are you can't do that and have all the other lovely holistic things that are needed in your life in order for you to really enjoy good health into late life. And I think that really touches actually on this kind of like balance of accountability at the same time. I think it's very, very easy to to have a particular pain point or be dissatisfied with something and be very, very hyper-focused on that individual thing. But actually also each individual person taking an, a broader accountability for all of the things that need to come with it, like a recovery there are some like you're talking about like with h pleuri there's going to be a specific antibiotic and um you are going to have to take that antibiotic for a couple of weeks that's the intervention from the nhs very very helpful but what can you do around that and outside of that to kind of aid recovery i guess it's the same with like hip replacements or like the outcomes aren't dictated a hundred percent just by the treatment yeah absolutely and it's you know that that is can be said for any condition you know if we diabetes is quite a nice example you'll have medications thrown at you if you're diagnosed with diabetes but if you don't change your diet those medications inevitably are going to continue to escalate through the course of your of your of your disease course essentially whereas now we also know that there are dietary treatments that can reverse diabetes which we offer in the clinic which you know actually some of that power is in your hands and we can take it but i think Obviously, we have to. It's, I always want to caveat this by the understanding that these, not everybody has all the power over their own food and the things they can do and the things they can afford to do, all of that sort of stuff. So, you know, if you are someone who is eating from a food bank, the chances of you being able to reverse your diabetes through dietary interventions, next to nothing. So we have to understand that the environment we live in now. But that said, I think, you know, a lot of this, for those of us who are able to, being able to manage our own health as much as possible and, and tap into, or what can I do to, to further support this, I think is a really powerful and important message. Um, talking uh, a little bit around um, uh, diets, um, there is obviously, you can't go into a supermarket now without seeing, uh, you know, with facing those kind of decisions. It's a good point there, right? Around lots of us are approaching this in very, very different situations. Some of us from very privileged uh, situations, whether that be uh, an economic position, a social position. Uh, and I think organic is a really interesting one there because um, even now for somebody who has a relatively decent income, let's say, um, there is lots of research around kind of organic food. But I think I saw something the other day that was saying that, you know, if you were to eat purely organic food is priced around about 88% more expensive mm -hmm. than the kind of standard food. And I was interested on your kind of take on that. Let's just say, yeah, that is something that you can afford. Is it worth something stretching for? Um, what are your thoughts around organic and eating organic? Yeah, my the, the sort of research suggests that there's not a significant nutritional difference between organic food and non-organic food. Over time, soils are becoming more depleted. Organic soils are more likely to be less depleted in nutrients. So that's going to impact the food quality to some extent. 
I certainly don't eat organic food. I think it's uh, excessively priced. It's not something that I feel is a priority. I think one of the things that people could really focus on is trying to eat a bit more locally and seasonally. So if you're someone who's thinking about the quality of your fruit and veg and am I getting everything I need from this? Should I be buying organic? I'd really encourage you to think about trying to go to if there's local farmers markets, things like that. If food's done less air miles, it's been not been through various different supermarket shelves and warehouses and all sorts of other things. And also it's seasonal. You've got to get the best of, of what you're looking for. So in terms of prioritizing, especially from a financial perspective, then seasonally would probably be a better bet for you. So if, if it was an option between diversity and organic, you would pick go for more diversity than necessarily having a smaller range of organic. Foods. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Every time you've got you've got bacteria, we don't know the difference between organic food and non-organic food. I think, you know, I would say wash your vegetables well, try and get rid of those pesticides from the outsides and things like that. But ultimately, um, diversity seems to be the most important thing at the moment. And for people like talking about, you know, researching these things, you know, you, you, you pick up the Sunday Times, you pick up the Daily Mail, you read an article about the dangers of organic food, you make an impulsive decision, you go and, um, and this is a good place to talk about it on a podcast, right? But how, how do you advise, where, where is, I say this because I saw uh, an article that you'd written in response to um, Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> publishing. Uh, so basically, and you, I'm going to paraphrase here, so correct me mm -hmm. if I'm wrong, but she essentially had uh, done like her top picks of the season, which was like a charcoal lemonade and was telling everyone like this is how you need to start your day and, and then you had to write an article about like well okay here's the actual kind of science around charcoal and 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 as I was kind of reading through that um you know TikTok Instagram podcasts right how how does somebody kind of go out now because we're having conversations right around okay the NHS dietitians amazing stuff there but there's also some stuff that there's a risk of some of that kind of being outdated some pioneering functional practitioners but the data is very new the trials are kind of very limited like where where do people go to kind of find this kind of because we have lots of people on this podcast this is just a platform for people to talk about with contradicting uh, things which, is, which yeah. is great i think that's all you can do right is give people a platform and have the discussion but where 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 do people begin to go and get really really solid foundational stuff that is relatively kind of up to date yeah and look it's getting harder and harder because now we have professors who are saying some really wild stuff that's not in any way linked to what is conceit like conventional wisdom let's say i think one of the things that's really important to recognize is that there are huge bodies of research that have gone into drawing conclusions and, and writing guidelines and things like that, for example. And what happens often is people who are excited, people who have a message and want to share something, they've read one paper and they come along and they say, this is, this is new and this is a fact, but they're not able to contextualize that within the whole body of literature that's gone before it. And if there's one paper saying one thing, but there's a hundred papers over 25 years saying the complete opposite 
we need to be questioning that one paper and not going, oh, well, we were wrong all this time, right? That's the thing that we need to think about. And it might be interesting and it might be exciting, it might be new, but ultimately we need to contextualize it within the entire body of literature that's led us to the conclusions that we've come to to date about that particular topic. And as a, I've always worked in colorectal, I've done short stints in other areas of practice in my very early career, but I've always worked in colorectal. I couldn't now go and pick up a, a, a diabetes journal and go, oh, well, now I know everything about diabetes because I don't know, I don't remember. <laughs> the entire body of literature that's gone before that one thing, right? So it's about recognising who is a specialist in what area, because once you've immersed, immersed yourself for 10, 20 years in that one area of specific practice, you're much more likely to be an expert in it. But now we have a lot of medical doctors, for example, who are suddenly very interested in nutrition because it's buzzy, because you can make a lot of money from it, because there's lots of opportunities in that space. And they are picking up one piece of information and going, this is, this is a fact, and, and, and sharing it to their thousands and hundreds of thousands of followers, when in fact the rest of the community is going, you have completely missed the point on that, and you don't understand. And so it is, it's really hard for the general population, especially with the types of people who are getting massive platforms now and getting, you know, I've not seen it. If we think about one of the biggest podcasts in the UK, Diary of a CEO, there's never been a dietitian on that podcast. And that really needs to change because dietitians have been working with people in terms of contextualizing this stuff forever. Um, so it's hard for people and TikTok, social media makes it even harder. I've been using Instagram to try and kind of bust, myth bust for over 10 years now. And it's an, it, it just gets harder and harder and harder every year. And more and more nonsense is spread on these platforms not only by influencers who are trying to sell people stuff, but also by some really credible people who I can really understand why the general public are getting behind them. It's, it's about trying to find experts who are true experts in that particular field that they're talking about. So look at their expertise. Is it in that particular? So someone's talking about nutrition. Have they got a degree in nutrition? Have they been working in nutrition for a long time? Have they been exposed to all the research in that area? Or are they someone who's just coming along and they've got some medical qualifications maybe, but actually they're not qualified to be talking about what they're talking about. And it's fine to have an opinion, but we have to be careful about how we present our skills and expertise. If I suddenly started presenting myself as an epidemiologist and started talking about COVID, or I was suddenly starting to present myself as a GP and talk about diabetes management people will be questioning it but when it's nutrition people are a bit like oh well they're an expert and they eat so they probably know the best and they know more than me whereas in reality it's not quite the case and I'm conscious I've been talking for a while but one of the things I, I was talking to one of my patients about yesterday even was that she's been working with me for probably three months we're making some really nice progress she's doing great but she's also got friends and family in her ear saying oh, you should try fermented foods, you should try this, you should try that, you should try the other. And she's going, I just don't know what to do. And they say that she's got diverticular and they're saying you shouldn't be eating skins and peels and pips and blah, blah, blah. She's barely eating anything at all. And I'm like, well, let's just try and practice some sentences where we can say, that's really helpful, but I'm really working on this at the moment and I think I'm making some progress. You know, it's, it's hard to block out the noise and it is everywhere, but it's something we all need to try and get a bit more savvy at. I think, I think one thing that I find sort of comforting in a way and it's i get an amazing opportunity right to speak to lots of interesting people with opposing opinions i think that's probably yeah a good thing um but i think um when we're talking about really really kind of specific things if somebody has a chronic inflammatory condition they've they've got those sort of particular things 
there are kind of set routes, set guidelines, set things that they can go down. And there's also alternative areas and going down the rabbit hole and really understanding that I think is okay. And I think looking at kind of different areas and making an informed decision, I think one of the broader sort of uh, uh, things, which is just general kind of optimization, which is 95% of the kind of population that are just interested in well-being, longevity, energy, those kind of things. There is, I, th I find something almost kind of comforting because you you bring all of these experts together, all of these kind of, whether it's a dietitian or a researcher or a doctor, all of these sorts of things. And the people that I've always been most impressed with, even though they, they are in their niche and they're really focused on something, is they all sort of have quite a similar message right and i think and it, it really I, I was reading a a book the other day it was he it was actually a, 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 a he was a psychologist and he was talking about um uh you see these parallels around nutrition you also see it around mental health right it's a similar field lots of people coming out with theories studies yeah. people that are qualified not qualified and he said you know he'd seen whatever, 10, thousands and thousands of clients in his clinical practice over his in, in entire kind of life's work. And his point of view was, he said, look, um, I probably on one hand could count the amount of people that were clinically depressed. Mm. And he said, and when somebody came to work with me, I would go, the first thing that I would do is they come in, they would sort of say they were depressed. And he said, well, before we get to that, let's just go through, I, I had this list of like 10 things. And these 10 things was things like, do you eat a balanced diet? Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you uh, sleep, you know, reasonably well? Do you have kind of a good sleep pattern? Mm -hmm. Do you have a group of friends that you take from and you contribute to? Do mm -hmm. you give something to the local community? How healthy is the relationship with your family? Do you have a purpose outside? And he was like, I never got to four. Yeah. He was like, I never got to kind of five. And I that to me is like, this is all really interesting. I think it's fascinating going down the rabbit hole and all, all of these sorts of things. But also there is kind of a reassuring thing of um, a lot of people are sort of saying that going backwards to what our great grandparents did and really kind of simplifying things down, you can't go too far wrong, similar to what you're saying, right? You're not saying, I'm a dietitian and these antibiotics and this specific anti-inflammatory treatment, it's try and eat relatively local food and cook it from scratch and don't have it covered in, and try and remove some kind of stress and have some kind of uh, uh, exercise in your yeah. life and do that on a daily basis over a really long period of time is probably going to give you the most net positive Totally, totally. And I think that, you know, the gut health space is an example of, and all of these things have been co-opted by companies trying to make money. And I get it, we all have commercial interests. But, you know, if we think about when we say, okay, we want to try and eat a bit more like our ancestors, we now have like the paleo diet and the carnivore diet. And these people trying to like, occupy this space and create like have a massive agenda to try and sell you nonsense and we have to just be aware of that you know we've got to have a skeptical eye on it but i think that the key is just as you say to think about okay well how much whole food am i eating as opposed to processed food i think that that's going to be become more and more into the public eye over the next few years 
am I eating as many kind of plants as I can in my diet? Is this is this as good as I can possibly do? Am I doing some sort of exercise that suits my body and it doesn't stress my body out? That does not mean doing HIIT workouts every morning at 5am or anything like that. It's finding things that suit you and your regime and what works for you. And then this other piece about mindfulness and stillness and trying to manage stress. Stress is such an important thing for us all to have a handle on. And one of the things I ask all my patients is, and what have you got in your stress management toolkit? <laughs> and they always go, what? Especially the men. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. Nothing. Don't know. Um, so it's about trying to find things that you can do every day that help you to reduce that cortisol level, which is such a powerful hormone that can have such a profound effect. So really, it's, 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 as you say, it's straightforward. It's not complicated things and potions and things you're buying and cutting everything out. It's about looking at things in a much more holistic way. Um, for, for, do you have some sort of daily things that for you are kind of really normal and kind of a part of your routine that you think other, that, that might like simple little things that you do that are kind of quick wins that you think other people might sort of benefit from? Do you know what I think I've, I've had a huge journey with my mental health and with my general health. And I think it's hard sometimes to sort of assimilate those things that I've had to do along the way to get to where I am now. One of the things that made the biggest difference to me was um, reducing negative self-talk. Um, I'm much better now at going, sorry, you've got this, you're fine. You've dealt with this stuff before, as opposed to going, oh, I'm an idiot. How have I done this? Where am I at? Blah, blah, blah. And of course those things creep in, but I think that positive self-talk is super, super important. One of the things I do every morning is take a bit of time to like, I call it calibrating to the day, recalibrating. So I get up a bit earlier than I necessarily need to. And I'll take some time to sit down and have a coffee and I'll take my supplements and I'll just take a little moment to arrive in the day. My worst days start with me getting up as my alarm goes off and having to get up and immediately go and do something, get out of the house, get in the shower, whatever it might be. So, and, and I don't have children and I live on my own. So I have the luxury of just being able to go, okay, this is my moment just to recalibrate. I will say for the record, you have a dog. Which, I have a you know, beautiful dog. So does, yeah. I mean, that is some level of responsibility oh, yeah. and apparently reasonably good for yeah, your great microphone gut health. as well. Great for gut health. And also, of course, on that note, the first thing I do before I kind of speak to anybody else or do anything else is I'll take the dog for a walk. And that movement being in nature makes a huge difference to my mental health and how my day starts and how I feel about the rest of the day and my stress management. He'll need another walk in the afternoon. I've got lovely, helpful support with that when I'm in clinic and whatever else. But a good day for me is bookended by a really nice walk with the dog. And that arriving and then departing from the day is so helpful for my mental health. I focus carefully on my sleep. So for me, there's no way that I can perform at the level that is required of me if I haven't had a good night's sleep and I track my sleep and I think about it and I focus on it and I try and optimize my sleeping regime. And then the thing in terms of diet, I mean, I drink plenty of water and all that other stuff as well, but really the thing that I focus on the most is like, have I got enough plants in this meal? Like I can't, I feel it's the only thing I guess as a dietitian that I kind of feel anxious about. And people are sometimes surprised about this because I'm happy to eat, you know, moderate amounts of processed food. And I love food. Like food is a massive part of my life. But if there's not enough vegetables on my plate, <laughs> I've got a bit of a problem. And that's kind of uh, the only thing that I really, that really kind of is, I guess, a bit of a telltale sign that I work in the industry, I guess, in terms of the way that I eat. 
But I, I do think it's that balance as well, because I think, you know, the more that people kind of get into, uh, it, it, it can almost become sort of religion like, can't it? Like you get into health and well-being, and it's like, but almost by getting into it, it can become the thing that sort of throttles you in a way where it's like, yeah. well, I've got to schedule my mindfulness and then I've got to take these supplements. And, and actually I only eat these sorts of things, but actually yeah. having how even a lot of people that I speak to that are, you know, really, really into their diet, generally the people I speak to that seem to have the kind of most balance have a real kind of 80, 20 attitude. Like yeah, totally. generally I try and eat clean. I have loads of vegetables because also that idea of like, if you get really stressed about food mm-hmm. and you go to somewhere and you can't eat the food, like the impact of that is what just, yeah, again, that's food is, food is joy. Food is social. Food is culture. And when we get so fixated, I see a lot of men who are doing fasting, right? It's typically men and they're saying, oh, I'm not eating with my family anymore because I'm fa- it's past my fasting window. And I'm like, that's not healthy. Where has that become healthy? How has that got to be healthy and in inverted commas? So it's kind of trying to have that really holistic view. And I would say, you know, when you work, I've worked in intensive care for a long time. I think like once you've been in those kinds of environments and you see the human body and, and what it's capable of and how bad things can be I guess it makes you not sweat the small stuff so much and makes you think oh yeah I'm gonna eat that sweet that someone's offered me randomly I'm gonna eat not not from a stranger obviously I'm gonna eat that sweet someone's offered me randomly and whatever it might be like it's not it's not a big deal you know it's not a big deal because in the end like your body is amazing and it can sweep up lots of things but it's the kind of day-to-day things that's what I say to my patients as well you know it's not what you do when you go out for dinner it's what you do every day at home that makes a difference uh, if you want to find out more about Sophie, maybe you want to work with her or you know somebody that might benefit um, uh, from working with her, you can check out City Dietitians and you can follow Sophie at Sophie Dietitian on Instagram and continue uh, to get these wise words of advice um, uh, directly to your feed. Um, Sophie, thanks for taking the time. I was most excited that I got to meet your dog before okay. we started the podcast. <laughs> uh, that was the real benefit for me but it was really really nice to have the conversation and hopefully we can um we can do it again sometime absolutely thanks for having me ollie